A Game of Thrones by George R. R. Martin, read by Roy Detrice. Book One, Part One of A Song of Ice and Fire. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by sections at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, Incorporated, in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact the association on country code plus six one, area code zero eight. Nine three double one eight two zero two, or by email, dtb at guidedogswa dot com dot au. Prologue. We should start back, Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The wildlings are dead. Do the dead frighten you? Sir Waymar Royce asked with just the hint of a smile. Garrett did not rise to the bait. He was an old man, past fifty, and he had seen the lordlings come and go. Dead is dead, he said. We have no business with the dead. Are they dead? Royce asked softly. What proof have we? Will saw them, Garrett said, and if he says they're dead, that's proof enough for me. Will had known they would drag him into the quarrel sooner or later. He wished it had been later rather than sooner. My mother told me that dead men sing no songs. He put in. My wet nurse said the same thing. Will Royce replied, "Never believe anything you hear at a woman's tit. There are things to be learned even from the dead." His voice echoed too loud in the twilight forest. We have a long ride before us. Garrett pointed out, eight days, maybe nine, and night is falling. Sir Waymar Royce glanced at the sky with disinterest. It does that every day about this time. Are you unmanned by the dark, Garrett? Will could see the tightness around Garrett's mouth, the barely suppressed anger in his eyes, under the thick black hood of his cloak. Garrett had spent forty years in the night's watch, man and boy, and he was not accustomed to being made light of. Yet it was more than that. Under the wounded pride, Will could sense something else in the older man. You could taste it—a nervous tension that came perilous close to fear. Will shared his unease. He had been four years on the wall. The first time he had been sent beyond, all the old stories had come rushing back, and his bowels had turned to water. He had laughed about it afterwards. He was a veteran of a hundred rangings by now, and the endless dark wilderness that the Southerns called the haunted forest had no more terrors for him. Until tonight, something was different tonight. There was an edge to this darkness that made his hackles rise. Nine days they had been riding north and northwest, and then north again, farther and farther from the wall. Hard on the track of a band of wilding raiders, each day had been worse than the day that had come before. Today was the worst of all. A cold wind was blowing out of the north, and it made the trees rustle like living things. All day, Will had felt as though something was watching him, something cold and implacable that loved him not. Garrett had felt it too. Will wanted nothing so much as to ride hell bent for the safety of the wall, but that was not a feeling to share with your commander. 
especially not a commander like this one. Sir Waymar Royce was the youngest son of an ancient house with too many heirs. He was a handsome youth of eighteen, grey-eyed and graceful and slender as a knife. Mounted on his huge black destrier, the knight towered above Will and Garrett on their smaller garrons. He wore black leather boots, black woolen pants, black moleskin gloves, and a fine supple coat of gleaming black ringmail over layers of black wool and boiled leather. Sir Waymar had been a sworn brother of the Night's Watch for less than half a year, but no one could say he was not prepared for his vacation, at least insofar as his wardrobe was concerned. His cloak was his crowning glory, sable, thick, and black, and soft as sin. Bet he killed them all himself, he did, Garrett told the barracks over wine. Twisted their little heads off, our mighty warrior. They had all shared a laugh. It is hard to take orders from a man you laughed at in your cups, Will reflected as he sat shivering atop his garron. Garrett must have felt the same. Mormont said, we shall track them, and we did, Garrett said. They're dead. They shan't trouble us no more. There's hard riding before us. I don't like this weather. If it snows, we could be a fortnight getting back, and snow's the best we can hope for. Ever seen an ice storm, my lord? The lordlings seemed not to hear him. He studied the deepening twilight in that half-bored, half-distracted way he had. Will had ridden with the knight long enough to understand that it was best not to interrupt him when he looked like that. Uh, tell me again what you saw, Will. All the details. Leave nothing out. Will had been a hunter before he joined the Night's Watch. Well, a poacher, in truth. Malister Freeriders had caught him red-handed in the Malister's own wood, skinning one of the Malister's own bucks, and it had been a choice of putting on the black or losing a hand. No one could move through the woods as silent as Will, and it had not taken the Black Brothers long to discover his talent. The camp is two miles further on, over that ridge, hard beside a stream, Will said. I got close as I dared. There's eight of them. Men and women both. No children, I could see. They put up a lean-to against the rock. The snow has pretty well covered it now, but I could still make it out. No fire burning, but the fire pit was still plain as day. No one moving. I watched a long time. No living man ever lay so still. Did you see any blood? Well, no, Will admitted. Did you see any weapons? Some swords, a few bows. One man had an axe. Heavy-looking, double-bladed, a cruel piece of iron. It was on the ground beside him, right by his hand. Did you make note of the position of the bodies? Will shrugged. A couple are sitting up against the rock, most of them on the ground, fallen-like. Or sleeping, Royce suggested. Fallen, Will insisted. There's one woman up an ironwood, half hid in the branches. A far eyes. He smiled thinly. I took care she never saw me. When I got closer, I saw that she wasn't moving neither. Despite himself, he shivered. You have a chill? Royce asked. Some, Will muttered. The wind, my lord. The young knight turned back to his grizzled man of arms. Frost-fallen leaves whispered past them, and Royce's destrier moved restlessly. What do you think might have killed these men, Garrett? Sir Waymar asked casually. He adjusted the drape of his long sable cloak. It was a cold, Garrett said, with iron certainty. 
Icehole men freeze last winter, and the one before, when I was half a boy. Everyone talks about snows forty feet deep, and how the ice wind comes howling out of the north. But the real enemy is the cold. It steals up on you quieter than will, and at first you shiver and your teeth chatter, and you stamp your feet and dream of mulled wine and nice hot fires. It burns, it does. Nothing burns like the cold, but only for a while. Then it gets inside you and starts to fill you up. And after a while, you don't have the strength to fight it. It's easier just to sit down or go to sleep. They say you don't feel any pain toward the end. First you go weak and drowsy, and everything starts to fade. And then it's like sinking into a sea of warm milk, peaceful like. Oh, such elegance, Garrod, Sir Waymar observed. I never suspected you had it in you. I've had the cold in me too, Lordling. Garrod pulled back his hood, giving Sir Waymar a good long look at the stumps where his ears had been. Two ears, three toes, and the little finger of me left hand. I got off light. We found my brother frozen at his watch, with a smile on his face. Sir Waymar shrugged. You ought to dress more warmly, Garrett. Garrett glared at the lordling. The scars around his ear holes flushed red with anger, where Maester Eamon had cut the ears away. We'll see how warm you can dress when the winter comes. He pulled up his hood and hunched over his garron, silent and sullen. If Garrett said it was the cold, Will began. Have you drawn any watches this past week, Will? Yes, my lord. There never was a week when he did not draw a dozen bloody watches. What was the man driving at? And how did you find the wall? Weeping, Will said, frowning. He saw it clear enough, now that the lordling had pointed it out. They couldn't have frozen. Not if the wall was weeping. It wasn't cold enough. Royce nodded. Bright lad. We've had a few light frosts this past week and a quick flurry of snow now and then, but surely no cold fierce enough to kill eight grown men. Men clad in fur and leather, let me remind you, with shelter near at hand and the means of making fire. The knight's smile was cocksure. Will lead us there. I would see these dead men for myself. And then there was nothing to be done for it. The order had been given, and honour bound them to obey. Will went in front, his shaggy little garron peeking the way carefully through the undergrowth. A light snow had fallen the night before, and there were stones and roots and hidden sinks lying just under its crust, waiting for the careless and the unwary. Sir Waymar Royce came next, his great black destrier snorting impatiently. The war horse was the wrong mount for ranging, but try and tell that to the lordling. Garrod brought up the rear. The old man-at-arms muttered to himself as he rode. Twilight deepened. The cloudless sky turned a deep purple, the color of an old bruise, then faded to black. The stars began to come out. A half-moon rose. Will was grateful for the light. "'We can make a better pace than this, surely,' Royce said, when the moon was full-risen. "'Not with this horse,' Will said. Fear had made him insolent. Perhaps my lord would care to take the lead. So Waymar Royce did not deign to reply. Somewhere off in the wood a wolf howled. Will pulled his garron over beside an ancient gnarled ironwood and dismounted. 
Why are you stopping? Sir Waymar asked. Best to go the rest of the way on foot, my lord. It's just over that ridge. Royce paused a moment, staring off into the distance, his face reflective. A cold wind whispered through the trees, his great sable cloak stirred behind him like something half alive. There's something wrong here, Garrod muttered. The young knight gave him a disdainful smile. Is there? Can't you feel it? Garrod asked. Listen to the darkness. Will could feel it. Four years in the night watch, and he had never been so afraid. What was it? Wind. Trees rustling. A wolf. Which sound is it that unmanned you so, Garrod? When Garrod did not answer, Royce slid gracefully from his saddle. He tied the destrier securely to a low-hanging limb, well away from the other horses, and drew his longsword from its sheath. Jewels glittered in its hilt, and the moonlight ran down the shining steel. It was a splendid weapon, castle-forged and new-made from the look of it. Will doubted it had ever been swung in anger. "'The trees press close here,' Will warned. "'That sword will tangle you up, my lord. Better a knife. "'If I need instruction, I will ask for it,' the young lord said. "'Garrod, stay here. Guard the horses.' Garrod dismounted. "'We need a fire. I'll see to it.' How big a fool are you, old man, if there are enemies in this wood, as far as the last thing we want? There's some enemies a fire will keep away, Garrett said. Bears and direwolves and, uh, and, and other things. Sir Waymer's mouth became a hard line. No fire. Garrett's hood shadowed his face, but Will could see the hard glitter in his eyes as he stared at the night. For a moment he was afraid the older man would go for his sword. It was a short, ugly thing, its grip discoloured by sweat, its edge nicked from hard use, but Will would not give an iron bob for the lordling's life if Garrod had pulled it from its scabbard. Finally, Garrod looked down. No fire, he muttered, low under his breath. Royce took it for acquiescence and turned away. Need on, he said to Will. Will threaded their way through a thicket, then started up the slope to the low ridge where he had found his vantage point under a sentinel tree. Under the thin crust of snow, the ground was damp and muddy, slick footing, with rocks and hidden roots to trip you up. Will made no sound as he climbed. Behind him he heard the soft metallic slither of the lordling's ringmail, the rustle of leaves and muttered curses as reaching branches grabbed at his longsword and tugged at his splendid sable cloak. The great sentinel was right there at the top of the ridge, where Will had known it would be, its lowest branches a bare foot off the ground. Will slid in underneath, flat on his belly in the snow and the mud, and looked down on the empty clearing below. His heart stopped in his chest. For a moment he dare not breathe. Moonlight shone down on the clearing. The ashes of the fire pit the snow-covered lean-to, the great rock, the little half-frozen stream, everything was just as it had been a few hours ago. They were gone. All the bodies were gone. Gods! he heard behind him. A sword slashed at a branch as Sir Waymar Royce gained the ridge. He stood there beside the sentinel, long-sword in hand, his cloak billowing behind him as the wind came up, outlined nobly against the stars for all to see. Get down, 
Will whispered urgently, Something's wrong. Royce did not move. He looked down at the empty clearing and laughed. <laughs> Your dead men seem to have moved camp, Will. Will's voice abandoned him. He groped for words that did not come. It was not possible. His eyes swept back and forth over the abandoned campsite, stopped on the axe, a huge, double-bladed battle-axe still lying where he had seen it last, untouched, a valuable weapon. "'On your feet, Will,' Sir Waymar commanded. "'There's no one here. I won't have you hiding under a bush.' Reluctantly, Will obeyed. Sir Waymar looked him over with open disapproval. "'I'm not going back to Castle Black of failure on my first ranging. "'We will find these men,' he glanced around. "'Up the tree. Be quick about it. Look for a fire.' Will turned away, wordless. There was no use to argue. The wind was moving. It cut right through him. He went to the tree, a vaulting grey-green sentinel, and began to climb. Soon his hands were sticky with sap, and he was lost among the needles.' Fear filled his gut like a meal he could not digest. He whispered a prayer to the nameless gods of the woods and slipped his dirk free of its sheath. He put it between his teeth to keep both hands free for climbing. The taste of cold iron in his mouth gave him comfort. Down below, the lordling called out suddenly, "'Who goes there?' Will heard uncertainty in the challenge. He stopped climbing. He listened. He watched." The woods gave answer, the rustle of leaves, the icy rush of the stream, a distant hoot of a snow owl. The others made no sound. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness, then it was gone. Branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers. Will opened his mouth to call down a warning— and the words seemed to freeze in his throat. Perhaps he was wrong. Perhaps it had only been a bird, a reflection on the snow, some trick of the moonlight. What had he seen, after all? Will, where are you? Sir Waymar called up. Can you see anything? He was turning in a slow circle, suddenly weary, his sword in hand. He must have felt them, as Will felt them. There was nothing to see. Answer me! Why is it so cold? It was cold. Shivering, Will clung more tightly to his perch, his face pressed hard against the trunk of the sentinel. He could feel the sweet, sticky sap on his cheek. A shadow emerged from the dark of the woods. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt, and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. Its armour seemed to change colour as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep grey-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. Will heard the breath go out of Sir Waymar Royce in a long hiss. "'Come no further,' the lordling warned. His voice cracked like a boy's. He threw the long sable cloak back over his shoulders to free his arms for battle and took his sword in both hands. The wind had stopped. It was very cold. The other slid forward on silent feet. In its hand was a long sword like none that Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. 
It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. Sir Waymar met him bravely. Dance with me, then. He lifted his sword high above his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it, or perhaps in the cold. Yet in that moment, Will thought, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the night's watch. The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the long sword, trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal. For a heartbeat he dared to hope. They emerged silently from the shadows, twins to the first, three of them, four, five. Sawayamah may have felt that cold that came with them, but he never saw them, never heard them. Will had to call out. It was his duty, and his death if he did. He shivered and hugged the tree and kept the silence. The pale sword came shivering through the air. Sawaymar met it with steel. When the blades met, there was no ring of metal on metal, only a high, thin sound at the edge of hearing, like an animal screaming in pain. Royce checked a second blow and a third, then fell back a step. Another flurry of blows, and he fell back again. Behind him, to right, to left, all around him, the watcher stood patient, faceless, silent, the shifting patterns of their delicate armor making them all but invisible in the wood. Yet they made no move to interfere. Again and again the swords met, until Will wanted to cover his ears against the strange, anguished keening of their clash. Sir Waymar was panting from the effort now, his breath steaming in the moonlight. His blade was white with frost. The others danced with pale blue light. Then Royce's parry came a beat too late. The pale sword bit through the ringmail beneath his arm. The young lord cried out in pain. Blood welled between the rings. It steamed in the cold, and the droplets seemed red as fire where they touched the snow. Sir Waymar's fingers brushed his side, his moleskin glove came away, soaked with red. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake, and the words were mocking. So Waymar Royce found his fury. For Robert, he shouted, and he came up snarling, lifting the frost-covered longsword with both hands and swinging it around in a flat sidearm slash with all his weight behind it. The other's parry was almost lazy. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. A scream echoed through the forest night, and the long sword shivered into a hundred brittle pieces, the shards scattering like a rain of needles. Royce went to his knees, shrieking, and covered his eyes. Blood welled between his fingers. The watchers moved forward together, as if some signal had been given. The swords rose and fell, all in deathly silence. It was cold butchery. The pale blade sliced through ring mail as if it were silk. Will closed his eyes. Far beneath him, he heard their voices and laughter, sharp as icicles. 
when he found the courage to look again. A long time had passed, and the ridge below was empty. He stayed in the tree, scarce daring to breathe, while the moon crept slowly across the black sky. Finally, his muscles cramping and his fingers numb with cold, he climbed down. Royce's body lay face down in the snow, one arm outflung. The thick sable cloak had been slashed in a dozen places. Lying dead like that, you saw how young he was. A boy. He found what was left of the sword a few feet away. The end splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning. Will knelt, looked around wearily, and snatched it up. The broken sword would be his proof. Garrett would know what to make of it, and if not him, then surely that old bear Mormont or Maester Amon. Would Garrett still be waiting with the horses? He had to hurry. Will rose. Sir Waymar Royce stood over him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. The right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood. Yet the touch was icy cold. Bran The morning had dawned clear and cold, with a crispness that hinted at the end of summer. They set forth at daybreak to see a man beheaded, twenty in all, and Bran rode among them, nervous with excitement. This was the first time he had been deemed old enough to go with his lord father and his brothers to see the king's justice done. It was the ninth year of summer and the seventh of Bran's life. The man had been taken outside a small holdfast in the hills. Rob thought he was a wildling, his sword sworn to Mance Raider, the king beyond the wall. It made Bran's skin prickle to think of it. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told them. The wildlings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. They consorted with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night and drank blood from polished horns, and their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible, half-human children. But the man they found bound hand and foot to the whole fast wall, awaiting the king's justice, was old and scrawny, not much taller than Rob. He had lost both ears and a finger to frostbite, and he dressed all in black, the same as the brother of the night's watch, except that his furs were ragged and greasy. The breath of man and horse mingled, steaming in the cold morning air, as his lord father had the man cut down from the wall and dragged before them. Rob and John sat tall and still on their horses, with Bran between them on his pony, trying to seem older than seven, trying to pretend that he'd seen all this before. A faint wind blew through the Holfast gate. Over their heads flapped the banner of the Starks of Winterfell, a grey direwolf racing across an ice-white field. 
Bran's father sat solemnly on his horse, long brown hair stirring in the wind. His closely trimmed beard was shot with white, making him look older than his thirty-five years. He had a grim cast to his grey eyes this day, and he seemed not at all the man who would sit before the fire in the evening and talk softly of the age of heroes and the children of the forest. He had taken off father's face, Bran thought, and donned the face of Lord Stark of Winterfell. There were questions asked and answers given there in the chill of morning, but afterwards Bran could not recall much of what had been said. Finally, his lord father gave a command, and two of his guardsmen dragged the ragged man to the ironwood stump in the center of the square. They forced his head down onto the hard black wood. Lord Eddard Stark dismounted, and his ward, Theon Greyjoy, brought forth the sword. Ice, that sword was called. It was as wide as a man's hand, and taller even than rub. The blade was Valyrian steel, spell-forged and dark as smoke. Nothing held an edge like Valyrian steel. His father peeled off his gloves and handed them to Jory Cassell, the captain of the household guard. He took hold of ice with both hands and said, In the name of Robert of the house Baratheon, the first of the name, king of the Andals and the Rhinar and the first men, lord of the seven kingdoms and protector of the realm, by the word of Eddard of the house Stark, lord of Winterfell and warden of the north, I do sentence you to die. He lifted the great sword high above his head. Bran's bastard brother, Jon Snow, moved closer. Keep the pony well in hand, he whispered, and don't look away. Father will know if you do. Bran kept his pony well in hand and did not look away. His father took off the man's head with a single sure stroke. Blood sprayed out across the snow as red as summer wine. One of the horses reared and had to be restrained to keep from bolting. Bran could not take his eyes off the blood. The snows around the stump drank it eagerly, reddening as he watched. The head bounced off a thick root and rolled. It came up near Greyjoy's feet. Theon was a lean, dark youth of nineteen who found everything amusing. He laughed, put his boot on the head, and kicked it away. Ass! John muttered, low enough so Greyjoy could not hear. He put a hand on Bran's shoulder, and Bran looked over at his bastard brother. You did well, John told him solemnly. John was fourteen, an old hand at justice. It seemed colder on the long ride back to Winterfell, though the wind had died by then and the sun was higher in the sky. Bran rode with his brothers well ahead of the main party, his pony struggling hard to keep up with their horses. The deserter died bravely, Rob said. He was big and broad and growing every day with his mother's colouring, the fair skin, red-brown hair, and blue eyes of the Tullys of Riveron. He had courage, at the least. No, Jon Snow said quietly. It was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. John's eyes were grey, so dark, they seemed almost black, but there was little they did not see. He was of an age with Rob, but they did not look alike. John was slender, where Rob was muscular, dark where Rob was fair. Graceful and quick, 
where his half-brother was strong and fast. Rob was not impressed. The others take his eyes, he swore. He died well. Race you to the bridge? Done, John said, kicking his horse forward. Rob cursed and followed, and they galloped off down the trail. Rob laughing and hooting, John silent and intent. The hoofs of their horses kicked up showers of snow as they went. Brand did not try to follow. His pony could not keep up. He had seen the ragged man's eyes, and he was thinking of them now. After a while, the sound of Rob's laughter receded, and the woods grew silent again. So deep in thought was he that he never heard the rest of the party until his father moved up to ride beside him. "'Are you well, Bran?' he asked, not unkindly. "'Yes, father,' Bran told him. He looked up, wrapped in his furs and leathers, mounted on his great war-horse. The Lord Father loomed over him like a giant. Rob says the man died bravely, but John said he was afraid. "'And what do you think?' his father asked. Bran thought about it. "'Can a man still be brave if he's afraid?' "'That is the only time a man can be brave,' his father told him. "'Do you understand why I did it?' "'He was a wilding,' Bran said. "'They carry off women and sell them to the others.' His lord father smiled. "'Old Nan has been telling you stories again.' "'In truth, the man was an oath-breaker, a deserter from the night's watch. "'No man is more dangerous. "'The deserter knows his life is forfeit if he is taken.' so he will not flinch from any crime, no matter how vile. But you must take me. The question was not why the man had to die, but why I must do it. Bran had no answer for that. King Robert has a headsman, he said uncertainly. He does, his father admitted, as did the Targaryen kings before him. Yet our way is the older way. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps a man does not deserve to die. One day, Bran, you will be Rob's banner man, holding a keep of your own for your brother and your king, and justice will fall to you. When that day comes, you must take no pleasure in the task, but neither must you look away. A ruler who hides behind paid executioners soon forgets what death is. That was when John reappeared on the crest of the hill before him. He waved and shouted down at them, Father, Bran, come quickly, see what Rob has found. Then he was gone again. Jory rode up beside them. Trouble, my lord? Beyond a doubt, his lord father said. Come, let us see what mischief my sons have rooted out now. He sent his horse into a trot. Jory and Bran and the rest came after. They found Rob on the river bank north of the bridge, with John still mounted beside him. The late summer snows had been heavy this moon turn. Rob stood knee-deep in white, his hood pulled back so the sun shone in his hair. He was cradling something in his arm while the boys talked in hushed, excited voices. The riders picked their way carefully through the drifts, groping for solid footing on the hidden, uneven ground. Jory Cassell and Theon Greyjoy were the first to reach the boys. Greyjoy was laughing and joking as he rode. Bran heard the breath go out of him. Gods, he exclaimed, struggling to keep control of his horse as he reached for his sword. Jory's sword was already out. 
Rub, get away from it, he called his horse reared under him. Rub grinned and looked up from the bundle in his arms. She can't hurt you, he said. She's dead, Jory. Bran was afire with curiosity by then. He would have spurred the pony faster. But his father made them dismount beside the bridge and approach on foot. Bran jumped off and ran. By then, John, Jory, and Theon Greyjoy had all dismounted as well. What in the seven hells is it? Greyjoy was saying. A wolf, Rob told him. A freak, Greyjoy said. Look at the size of it. Bran's heart was thumping in his chest as he pushed through a waist-high drift to his brother's side. Half buried in the blood-stained snow, a huge dark shape slumped in death. Ice had formed in its shaggy grey fur, and the faint smell of corruption clung to it like a woman's perfume. Bran glimpsed blind eyes crawling with maggots, a wide mouthful of yellow teeth, but it was the size of it that made him gasp. It was bigger than his pony, twice the size of the largest hound in his father's kennel. It's no freak, John said calmly. That's a dire wolf. They grow larger than the other kind. Theon Greyjoy said, There's not been a dire wolf sighted south of the wall in two hundred years. I see one now, John replied. Bran tore his eyes away from the monster. That was when he noticed the bundle in Rub's arms. He gave a cry of delight and moved closer. The pup was a tiny ball of grey-black fur, its eyes still closed. It nuzzled blindly against Rub's chest as he cradled it, searching for milk among his leathers, making a sad little whimpery sound. Bran reached out hesitantly. Go on, Rob told him. You can touch him. Bran gave the pup a quick nervous stroke, then turned as John said, Here you go. His half-brother put a second pup into his arms. There are five of them. Bran sat down in the snow and hugged the wolf pup to his face. Its fur was soft and warm against his cheek. Dire wolves loose in the realm after so many years, muttered Hullam, the master of horse. I like it not. It's a sign, Jory said. Father frowned. This is only a dead animal, Jory, he said. Yet he seemed troubled. Snow crunched under his boots as he moved around the body. Do we know what killed her? There's something in the throat, Rob told him, proud to have found the answer before his father even asked. There, just under the jaw. His father knelt and groped under the beast's head with his hand. He gave a yank and held it up for all to see. A foot of shattered antler, tine snapped off, all wet with blood. A sudden silence descended over the party. The men looked at the antler uneasily, and no one dared to speak. Even Bran could sense their fear, though he did not understand. His father tossed the antler to the side and cleansed his hands in the snow. I'm surprised she lived long enough even to whelp, he said. His voice broke the spell. Maybe she didn't, Jory said. I've heard tales. Maybe the bitch was already dead when the pups came. Born with the dead, another man put in. Worse luck. No matter, said Holland. They'll be dead soon enough, too. Bran gave a wordless cry of dismay. The sooner the better, Theon Greyjoy agreed. He drew his sword. Give the beast here, Bran. The little thing squirmed against him as if it heard and understood.
"'No!' Bran cried out fiercely. "'It's mine!' "'Put away your sword, Greyjoy,' Rob said. For a moment he sounded as commanding as their father, like the lord he would some day be. "'We will keep these pups.' "'You cannot do that, boy,' said Harwin, who was Holland's son. "'It'll be a mercy to kill them,' Holland said. Bran looked to his lord father for rescue, but got only a frown, a furrowed brow. "'Holland speaks truly, son. Better a swift death than a hard one from cold and starvation.' "'No!' He could feel tears welling in his eyes, and he looked away. He did not want to cry in front of his father. Rob resisted stubbornly. So Roderick's red bitch whelped again last week, he said. It was a small litter, only two live pups. She'll have milk enough. She'll rip them apart when they try to nurse. Lord Stark, John said. It was strange to hear him call father that, so formal. Bran looked at him with desperate hope. There are five pups, he told father. Three male, two female. What of it, John? You have five true-born children, John said. Three sons, two daughters. The dire wolf is a sigil of your house. Your children were meant to have these pups, my lord. Bran saw his father's face change, saw the other men exchange glances. He loved John with all his heart at that moment. Even at seven, Bran understood what his brother had done. The count had come right only because John had omitted himself. He had included the girls, included even Rickon the baby, but not the bastard who bore the surname Snow, the name that custom decreed be given to all those in the North unlucky enough to be born with no name of their own. Their father understood as well. "'You want no pup for yourself, John?' he asked softly. "'The dire wolf graces the banner of House Stark,' John pointed out. "'I am no Stark, father.' Their lord father regarded John thoughtfully. Rob rushed into the silence he left. I will nurse him myself, father, he promised. I will soak a towel with warm milk and give him suck from that. Me too, Bran echoed. The lord weighed his sons long and carefully with his eyes. Easy to say, and harder to do. I will not have you wasting the servant's time with this. If you want these pups, you will feed them yourselves, is that understood? Bran nodded eagerly. The pup squirmed in his grasp, licked at his face with a warm tongue. "'You must train them as well,' the father said. "'You must train them. "'The kennel master will have nothing to do with these monsters. "'I promise you that. "'And the gods help you if you neglect them or brutalize them or train them badly. "'These are not dogs to beg for treats and slink off at a kick. "'A dire wolf will rip a man's arm off his shoulders easily as a dog will kill a rat. "'You sure you want this?' "'Yes, father,' Bran said. "'Yes,' Rob agreed.' The pups may die anyway, despite all you do. They won't die, Rob said. We won't let them die. Keep them, then. Jory, Desmond, gather up the other pups. It's time we were back to Winterfell. It was not until they were mounted and on their way that Bran allowed himself to taste the sweet air of victory. By then his pup was snuggling inside his leathers, warm against him, safe for the long ride home. Bran was wondering what to name him. Halfway across the bridge, John pulled up suddenly. "'What is it, John?' the Lord Father asked. "'Can't you hear it?' Bran could hear the wind in the trees, the clatter of their hooves on the ironwood planks, the whimpering of his hungry pup, but John was listening to something else. "'There,' John said. 
He swung his horse around and galloped back across the bridge. They watched him dismount where the direwolf lay dead in the snow, watched him kneel. A moment later he was riding back to them, smiling. He must have crawled away from the others, John said. All been driven away, the father said, looking at the sixth pup. His fur was white where the rest of the litter was grey. His eyes were red as the blood of the ragged man who had died that morning. Bran thought it curious that this pup alone would have opened his eyes while the others were still blind. An albino, Theo Greyjoy said with wry amusement. <laughs> this one will die even faster than the others. Jon Snow gave his father's ward a long, chilling look. I think not, Greyjoy, he said. This one belongs to me.